Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to our last event this term, um, ISO event. And Dulcis uh, in fundo, as um, the good Latins used to say, uh, I have the pleasure of welcoming a very special guest tonight, a man of great and much-deserved reputation, Salvatore Settis. <clears throat> Salvatore Settis is Emeritus Professor of Archaeology at the Scuola Normale Superiore di Pisa. He, was, uh, he has directed the Scuola Normale di Pisa uh, from 1999 till 2010, and the Getty Center for the History of Art and the Humanities from 1994 to 1999, and has lectured and taught in numerous institutions all around the world. In Oxford, he gave the Isaiah Berlin Lectures at the Ashmolean Museum in year 2000. He is one of the founding members of the European Research Council. His skills and specializations are admirably vast, spanning from archaeology and art history and architecture to the social sciences, law, and biology. Salvatore Settis has been indefatigably committed for many years now to defend Italy's cultural heritage, monuments, and landscape, to denounce savage urbanization, political irresponsibility, and to oppose historical oblivion, both in Italy and around the world. Salvatore Settis is a perfect example of how vita activa and vita contemplativa can coexist in one individual. He is a scholar, cultural promoter, a militant intellectual, a social critic, and a passionate advocate of human and environmental rights, a man whose work and style are grounded on a fierce belief in and a lucid defense of the totality of life on Earth. His attacks on political maladministration have stirred memorable debates for which we all should thank him if we do care for beauty, peace, and justice in the world. Salvatore Settis does his job with amazing elegance, humane commitment, and provocative courage combining knowledge and hands-on action, or, to paraphrase our beloved Machiavelli, lezione delle cose antiche and esperienza delle moderne. His vehement rhetoric is a precious demonstration of ethical rigor and of faith in change, which powerfully and inspiringly counters a double tendency in today's cultural and academic discourse, not just in Italy, the often futile blah-blah of the so-called leaders and the formulaic acquiescence of the majority. His published work is as vast as his, as his areas of expertise. Dozens of books uh, and hundreds of articles on academic journals and newspapers. His passion and encyclopedic knowledge have gained him affiliations to numerous important cultural institutions and museums, such as the Accademia dei Lincei, the Prado and the Louvre, the Fiulaure ad Honorem in law and architecture, for example, literary prizes, he got two Viareggio prizes, um, and distinctions from the most prestigious international institutions. He is also a member 
of the Berlin-Brandenburgische Akademie der Wissenschaft, of the American Philosophical Association, of the Institut de France, uh, and so on and so forth. Among his most recent activities, I should like to mention the organization of two splendid exhibitions, uh, um, of which I've, got, uh, I've had the luck of seeing the, the Milan one, um, called uh, uh, Syria Classic. Um, there's a second one, um, a complementary exhibition called Portable Classic in Venice. What makes these two exhibitions particularly noteworthy, be, besides the beauty of, uh, of uh, the concepts and, and the displays and the objects, indeed, uh, is the fact that uh, uh, Prada, the Prada Foundation, committed these uh, two um, exhibitions. Let me just mention, before I uh, conclude, uh, a few um, publications, a few books actually. La Tempesta Interpretata, Giorgione, uh, I Committenti di Soggetto, 1978, La Colonna Tra Traiana, 1988, Lao Conte, 1999. This uh, major uh, editorial publishing enterprise, uh, which Salvatore Settis uh, edited and directed, I Greci, Storia Culturale, Arte e Modernità, um, Italia Spa, L'Assalto al Patrimonio Culturale, 2002, Futuro del Classico, 2004, again another major opus uh, which Salvatore uh, Settis edited, Memoria dell'Antico nell'Arte Italiana, an absolutely fundamental reference work, Paesaggio, Costituzione, Cemento, La Battaglia per l'Ambiente contro il Degrado Civile, 2010, Azione Popolare, Cittadini per il Bene Comune, 2012, and uh, to just mention a very recent publication, Se Venezia Muore, 2014. Most of these books, if not all of them, have been published by Einaudi, and numerous translations are available in various languages around the world. Tonight, Salvatore Settis will speak to us about Venice, a topic in which he has been particularly involved. Some of his most significant articles and lectures are on the ills of Venice have been collected in the volume I just mentioned, Se Venezia Muore, published by Naudi in 2014. Please join me in welcoming Salvatore Settis. Thank you very much, Nicola, for your very generous presentation. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very grateful to you all for being here, and uh, it is always a great pleasure to be in Oxford, and particularly in uh, uh, this area of the city. As you understand from, uh, uh, from Nicola's introduction, what I will talk about this afternoon is very much linked to my book, Se Venezia Muore, If Venice Dies, the title is actually the same, and uh, it is a little book that uh, has been published quite recently and that is being translated in several languages, including English, in, uh, over the next few months. Uh, one uh, thing I should especially thank Nicola for is for mentioning uh, the two sides, these two sides, for linking the two sides of Vita Activa and Vita Contemplativa. I think, I actually think that the, these two sides are two sides of the same coin, 
uh, and that um, uh, history uh, of art and contemporary preoccupations and issues should be taken together by those of us who devote their life to studying history. And that history is an essential ingredient in understanding, not just in understanding the past, but in building the future. So I think that this is, uh, this is a, a very important point when uh, Cicero wrote Historia Magistra Vitae, History is Teacher of Life. I should say that uh, life is teacher of history, is life that is teaching us what history is for, why we should, why it is still worthwhile working in historical terms. And this is what I'm trying to do in uh, addressing the very complex problems of Venice today. And to begin with, this is not Venice, this is Las Vegas. Cities die in three different ways. First, when a relentless enemy destroys them, like Carthage, raised to the ground by Rome in 146 BC, or when a foreign nation instars itself with force, driving away the natives and their gods, like Tenochtitlan, the capital of the Aztecs, with the, the Spanish conquistadores wiped out in 1521 in order to build Mexico City on its ruins, or finally, when the inhabitants lose their memory of themselves and without, release, uh, uh, without realizing it, become actually strangers to themselves, their own enemies, the enemies of their own city. This was the case for Athens, which after the glory of the classical polis, after the Elgin marbles, before the, the Elgin marbles were actually the Elgin marbles, after the Parthenon sculptures, the, avenue of, uh, uh, the avenues of culture and history opened up by people like Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides, Pericles, Demosthenes, Praxiteles, and so forth. When Athens lost first its political independence under Alexander and then the Romans, and later its cultural autonomy, and then ended up forgetting every memory of itself. Carried away by a simple classicism taught at school, we often consider Athens like the whiteness of its marble temples and sculptures as unchanged over many centuries, and that it flowed with renewed splendor with the political independence of Greece in 1827. But this is not the case. Towards the end of the 12th century, when the very erudite Mikhail Koniates, who arrived from Constantinople and became Archbishop of Athens, he was left shocked at the terrible ignorance of the Athenians, who no longer knew who, anything of the ancient glories of their own city. They could not even identify their temples, though they were still intact, nor could they indicate where Socrates, Plato, or Aristoteles had taught. The Parthenon was at that time a church with walls covered in icons and where liturgical songs were heard and incense filled the air. <clears throat> it was later a Latin cathedral which was repeatedly plundered by Florentines and Venetians without the inhabitants lifting a finger to defend it. When Athens was occupied by the Turks in 1456, the Parthenon was transformed into a mosque, and even the name of the city 
was forgotten. What remained, what remained was a squalid village with old ruin here and there, and the inhabitants, reduced to a few thousand people, called it Satine, a mispronunciation to which, for example, Rome was never subject. But Athenians had begun to forget themselves long before this time. Already by around 430 AD, the Neoplatonic philosopher Proclus, who lived very close to the Acropolis, tells of having seen Athena, the goddess of the city, of the Parthenon, in a dream. And he tells that Athena, having been driven from her seat, asked for hospitality in his house, in Proclus' house. This nostalgic dream clearly conveys not only the end of a religion and its monuments, but also the decline of a culture and of its self-awareness. In the same manner that affects Alzheimer's sufferers, so do cities when they lose their own collective memory and therefore tend to lose their dignity. If something remains with their old spirit, it must find a home elsewhere, for example, in Constantinople or in the Italian European humanism. Today we have forgotten that even Athens eventually forgot itself. But perhaps we should recall the darkness of that forgotten memory so that we do not suffer the same affliction now or in the near future. Venice is a very special city, greatly loved and very fragile. We are now the most monumental areas frequently visited by international tourists, even if we have never explored its sestieri and minor churches, which are extraordinarily rich in urban and artistic merit. Everyone thinks they know a few characteristics which render Venice unique worldwide, and particularly an urban framework which has evolved over centuries, always maintaining only two means of getting about for people in Wales, by foot or by waterway. An extraordinary richness of monuments and works of art which reflect the extraordinary prosperity of the Serenissima. The constant decrease in the resident population, which is a contemporary problem, and the continual increase of mass tourism, which invades the most famous areas of the city. Finally, the fashion of having a second home in Venice, as many have, which has the effect of inflating prices and transforming Venice into a city of second homes, which often remain empty for almost the whole year. A recent statistics tells that most people having a second home in Venice stay there for no longer than two days and a half a year. Venice uh, is enclosed in its lagoon like a pearl in an oyster, but few understand the nature of the link between the lagoon and Venice, which is not merely a geographical link. The city extends onto 118 islands linked by bridges, but to these should be added other islands such as San Giorgio Maggiore, Torcello, and so forth, accessible only by water. City, islands, and lagoon make up an ecosystem unparalleled for the balance between natural environment and human presence. The lagoon has never been, for Venice, either a limit or a neutral space. It has been the very condition of its existence and has transformed itself over time in harmony with the city, reflecting its beauty and its history with a sort of counter melody without which even the voice of Venice would fade. 
this intimate union was very early on represented in maps. For example, in the, in, uh, in that, in the plan by Benedetto Bordone, 1528, in which the islands of the lagoon and the ring of land around the city, from Mestre to Lido, were conceived as a sort of urban periphery, integrated into the urban dimension by means of accurate toponymic indicators. In this plan, for instance, we can already see Marghera, a place we will talk about. It's uh, indicated in the upper portion by a red spot. <clears throat> so Marghera was thought of as belonging to the urban space as early as 1528. The territory of the Comune of Venice, according to current administrative divisions, includes a vast area of mainland, of which Marghera, Mestre, and other areas, including the airport at Tessera, are part. And population is moved towards these areas in recent decades, especially the younger generations. So here is some, some demography, some very um, rough demographical indication. But if we look at the population statistics for, for Venice, we see a noteworthy drop of 100,000 100, fewer inhabitants in the last 30 years. But this is even more impressive if you look at what happens in the very center of the, in the historical city. So these are the numbers, and you see from very recent uh, uh, data that uh, um, the number of people living, actually living in Venice drops by about uh, 1,000 a year in recent times. The numbers are very dramatic. The historical center of the resident population continues to decline inexorably, and uh, a few specifically uh, recent problems of which I will speak later come out against this worrying backdrop. If Venice ever has to die, it will not be on account of enemy invasions or because of the incursion of a new nation, I think. It will be above all because it has forgotten itself. Forgetting oneself for a community today does not only mean forgetting one's own history and the glories and defeats of the past. It also means the lost understanding of something that is increasingly evident and necessary. And I mean the specific role of every city with respect to others, the uniqueness of every city, the diversity of every city, versus that perhaps no other city in the world possesses as much as Venice. They are not only virtues of great value, but also of great necessity in a world in which the ancient urban dimension has not only grown enormously, but has been distorted by the growth of gigantic mega cities, human anthills, where in the name of productivity, Tens of millions of people gather, often condemned to conditions and patterns of life that have nothing to do with the sense and spirit of the city as it was born many centuries, indeed millennia ago. The city being the greatest cultural creation of the human race. A city for people of the measure of a man, as was said, and it is said still, I said that to a city thought of as a productive machine of goods and consumers, in which every human being is a small cog in a giant mechanism. This is the case with the city of Chongqing in China, which in 1930 had 600,000 inhabitants and today has 33 million, with an increase of 3 million in just the last three years. 
and a production of 18% of car production worldwide. The city, a cultural creation which is a hotbed of thought and civilization, a laboratory for social relations and culture, tends now to become the shell, often shapeless, of apparently inevitable and spontaneous conurbations, which are in reality governed by the oppressions of human beings over others, with small minorities that shape this process for their own advantage, and meanwhile relax in luxury out-of-town housing while the majority of citizens are walled up in housing blocks. This development, luckily, is coming about with unequal speed in various parts of the world and allows us to perceive, as often happens in Europe, but not only, the difference between the old forma urbis and the working and unhappy termite mounds which today are superseding it. In Italy, a place of very ancient urban civilization, this tension between the old city of people and the new farm of worker ants, which are also necessarily consumer ants, is expressed in the harsh contrast between historical centers and, and, and peripheries which besiege them. Having grown up in a haphazard and swift manner in the last few decades under the push of property speculation and land rents, Italian peripheries are in general characterized by an architecture of poor aesthetic and build quality, by a bad relation with their respective historical centers, by the poverty of or absence of spaces for social life. There are, of course, exceptions in hilltop cities, particularly, uh, which we can still see uh, their form, where we can still see uh, their form, the form of Siena, for instance, from far away. With those cities in the foreground, we cannot but acknowledge their beauty, which we discover only after having crossed the enormous and black suburbs. Yet Florence, for instance, was among the cities of Italy which wanted to safeguard their former urbis, making it visible from far away. And for this reason, in 1531, Florence passed the law by which it was uh, prohibited to build within a few miles from the walls of the city. Now, you, can, you, cannot, uh, you, you have to go in the middle of Florence in order to understand that you are in Florence and not somewhere else. Everywhere, the erosion of the very idea of the city, or more accurately, its metastasis in knots of indecipherable growths consumes itself above all in the relentless destruction of its link with the space that surrounds it. The centuries-old city-countryside harmony which made Italy the garden of Europe for its balance between città and campagna has died a violent death and its assassins were not barbarian invaders but Italians. Cities are not only made of buildings and roads, but of men and women with their cultural, religious, and social connections. Urban forms have been created and modified over time according to the powerful mechanism which Henri Lefebvre has termed the la, la production de l'espace, production of space, in the sense that the space in which we live, being by its very nature a social space, is produced actually produced by human beings, produced by people, and results from economic processes, political decisions, cultural choices, which come together, changing the balance between the public and the private, the religious and the secular, the functional and the symbolic from time to time, from generation to generation.
Every society produces its own space, a necessary theater of economic activities, of social hierarchies, of power, of knowledge, and of rights. And therefore, the space of an industrial civilization is radically different from that of an agricultural culture. For this reason, a city on the sea is different in nature from a city on land. For this reason, Venice, with its lagoon and the history unique uh, throughout the world, has produced over the centuries, bind around itself, a cultural and social space of a density and originality without real comparison. Social space envelops and determines the body of the individual, generates perceptions and representations and other values, levels of memory, and it is there that the experiences of today and hopes for tomorrow take their root. Conversely, individual perceptions and expectations are reflected onto the physical and social space and help to mold them. Yet, the individuals, even if all of their life depends on the health of the space which surrounds them, rarely succeed in controlling it, in even understanding that they should control it they care for their own health. More often, they, or should I say we, are overcome. The development of modern societies and of a few fundamental values such as freedom, democracy, equality, gets along with the collective creation of something like a code of space. Um, Henri Lefebvre mentioned le code de l'espace, which is at the same time, I'm quoting from Lefebvre, at the same time architectural, urban, and political, a common language for city and country dwellers, for the authorities and for the artists. This code guides both the collective production of social space and at the same time the individual capacity to read the social space, even if unconsciously, to assimilate it, to be permeated by the space and driven by its very shape while we are continually reshaping it. In the city as it was made and understood, the space that was ordered according to uh, a recognizable and shared code which was deeply meaningful. Thus for centuries, it offered to each person not only the physical coordinates of their own experience, but also a vivid memory of belonging there, the collective identity in which to reflect oneself, from which to draw strength and sustenance. This is particularly true in Venice, as it is in many other cities, including Oxford, of course. But the space of Venice was, and this still is, unique, not only because of its history and its language, but also because of the air that one breathes there with the environment of the lagoon life and memory of individuals and families, the waters, the cultural, artistic, religious, and economic life. Today, hundreds of millions of people live in monstrous built-up areas crowded by tens of millions of inhabitants, areas built to increase the production of goods for all and increase the profits for a few people without limit. And this process of concentrating people into giant beehives seems designed to expand in the future indefinitely. No one can believe that those who live in such cities 
live better lives and are happier than those who are lucky enough to live their own, their own lives in, in smaller cities, the space of which, however, reflects a richer, more articulate and varied urban culture. Yet mega cities attract us and scare us as they appear like housing areas from another planet and they have become, because they are very attractive in a sense, an ineluctable icon of our time. We imperceptibly tend to identify them with the very idea of modernity, whatever this word might mean. We are inclined to think that this and nothing else is the future for the planet. Unending population growth, non-stop consumption of natural resources, and of living space, a rising population density within the outer edges of constantly expanding and boundless metropolises. Caught in between the clause of watchwords of a neoliberal culture, we do not realize that this makes us feel poorer in our cities, where in, tr in truth we are richer. And this convinces us that if our cities were filled with skyscrapers, we would be richer and happier. Perhaps it is for this reason that as part of a project presented at the Venice Biennale a few years ago in 2010, a plan was proposed to save Venice from the high waters from the Aqua Alta by surrounding it by Corolla and quoting a Corolla skyscrapers built on artificial reefs which surrounds the city protects it from the seas and repopulates it with Venetians." End quote. The text which uh, accompanies this project from the officers of JDS Julian de Smet, a Dutch firm, reads as follows. Quote, when looking at a not-so-distant future, we have a few certainties. Sea levels will rise and global warming will affect climate. Aqualta 2060 is an attempt to describe this scenario. How do we protect the city from the sea? What if we consider building a new edge, a linear city emerging from the water around Venice, a new frame and a new perspective toward Venice to preserve and enjoy the historical city? What does this city look like? It is a long waterfront stretching in front of Venice. And if the weather is warmer, why not think of it as the Italian Copacabana, a long beach submerged by tropical vegetation. A vision of a vision, the old Venice overlooking the Bay of Ipanema. The new town beaches and houses will have the glorious backdrop of an unseen Venice. So far, my long quotation. From this text, which you can find uh, very easily on the web, Whatever its original intentions might have been, I would like to highlight two important, two, two important points. One, Venice is being cast into other latitudes, seen as, as a sort of, perifer of, of periphery of Rio de Janeiro. On the other, Venice no longer is a city in which to live, but rather becomes a city to observe from afar. In order to enjoy the view of the historical city, indeed, it is good to think of it as a glorious backdrop for whomever will live in the skyscrapers. In a vision such as this, the Venetians who would um, stay in the historical city would be like fish in a distant aquarium. A not very dissimilar idea was put forward in uh, June 2010 by the former mayor of Rome, 
In his view, uh, it was ne it, it was or it, it is necessary to break taboos. This what was is what he said to abolish the old restriction by which nothing in the, in the municipal territory can rise above the domes of St. Peter's, such as present regulations are. Make the periphery denser. This is what said the mayor by constructing skyscrapers. Moreover, demolish the peripheries and rebuild them, making them more dense with skyscrapers. The realm of skyscrapers, uh, this uh, uh, is another quotation from uh, the former mayor um, talk, a realm of skyscrapers next to the most important old city center in the world. But would these new skyscrapers map a new urban outline, or would they be a crown of thorns that besieges the historical center? Would they rectify the incessant expansion of the periphery to the detriment of the natural and historical environment, or would they break it up in the confusion of a disordered megacity? Would they improve Rome or make it worse? Skyscrapers in Rome, skyscrapers in Venice, skyscrapers recently built in Milan. This is not an imagination, this is reality. The party line in Italy goes now as follows. In Italy, in the last few decades, there have been too few high-quality architectural projects. Now, it is therefore the moment to make up for lost time. Because abroad, they build more and better buildings. That's the continuous anxiety, Italian anxiety for aggiornamento. This, this fever to update is a typically Italian provincial obsession. But in the name of progress, now everything seems loud. Rather, the skyscrapers become the symbol and incarnation of modernity without equivocation, of a challenge against which even Italy can win. We forget that the symbol of the skyscraper, which has defined the skyline of, for instance, New York or Chicago, began to rise up, to rise up at the end of the 19th century. So it is a symbol of modernity, one century old. And therefore, even a, a, a celebrated architect like Renzo Piano is now building a skyscraper in Turin, which according to the original project should be, as in this picture, taller than the Mole Antonelliana, thereby breaking city regulations. After many protests, the height of the new skyscraper was reduced. It will now stand 25 centimeters shorter than the Mole Antonelliana a ridiculous difference which is not a sign of respect but instead a sneer. However, building skyscrapers today in Italy means updating Italian cities to a century ago, or better, not imitating New York, but if anything, Chongqing, Singapore or Dubai. Italy should fight against the horrible urban sprawl that assaults its cities, not with the intrusion of skyscrapers in historical centers or on their outskirts, but rather through a new housing policy based upon the managing of the countryside that conforms to tradition and therefore knocking down as much as possible the horrors that suffocate historical landscape and protecting what can still be saved, which is still a lot. A new politics of reuse should be, in an Italian context, the first and most important goal of high-quality architecture, which apparently almost nobody understands. This would be a real revolution, in my view. It cannot take place in a single night, but it presupposes the spread of an urban and architectural culture that demands 
culturally equipped architects, sensible administrators, citizens capable of a new awareness. Whether this is possible or not, I don't know. I hope that you will forgive me if I continue to prefer the Venice of, by Odoardo Fialetti, a very glorious version of the city, even without skyscrapers around it. This next proposal, even if presented at Biennale, the one with the skyscrapers all around, is for the moment just a game, even if less innocuous than it appears. And by the way, it was written not by a Dutch architect, but, but by an Italian architect from Venice. Uh, working in that uh, Dutch uh, um, architectural um, company. Before speaking of more disturbing situation, let me briefly mention the system of protection in place in Italy. The norms of safeguarding the artistic heritage of uh, the old Italian states, including the Republic of Venice, are the oldest in the world. And they received new strength and new impetus after the encounter with French culture and the formation between the revolution and the restoration of the notion of patrimoine or, or, patrimoine, or, or patrimoine national, national or uh, patrimonio nazionale, beni culturali or cultural heritage. The Italian system is based on two laws, that of 1909 which deals with the protection of artistic heritage and law for the protection of the countryside and landscape, which was drawn up in 1920 by a Minister of Culture, a very special Minister of Culture, Benedetto Croce. These two laws were brought together in 1939 under the Minister Giuseppe Bottai, uh, when the, the, there was a fascist government. Under those regulations, Although they were from a fascist government, they were inspired by the laws of 1909 and 1920s of the uh, pre-fascist Italy. There was nothing specifically fascist about the laws of 1939, but uh, they were merely a rewriting of the la laws of post-unification Italy. And indeed, this is shown, among other things, by the very fact that after the wall and after the fall of, the, of fascism and the end of monarchy, the Constitutional Assembly, Assemblea Constituente in, of Italy, of the Italian Republic, decided to insert the essence of these two laws into our Constitution among the founding principles of the Italian state. Thus, Article 9 of the Italian Constitution reads as follows. The Republic promotes the development of culture and of scientific and technical research. It safeguards natural landscape and the historical and artistic heritage of the nation. So far, Article 9. For the first time, the principles of heritage entered into the founding principles of the constitution of a modern state. And uh, the, the current laws are still inspired by the laws I'm, I just mentioned. In Venice, like in other Italian cities, the erosion of the very idea of a city takes place above all in the destruction of the centuries-old harmony between city and countryside. What else where is countryside for Venice is the lagoon, where the waters of the sea mix with those of the rivers. For Venice, the lagoon was also a secure defensive perimeter, a port for goods to land and depart, the cradle of political life and economic prosperity. Therefore, for centuries, the Serenissima 
created and perfected mechanisms of surveillance and management over the waters in order to consolidate an ecosystem which implies and complements the city. After the fall of the Venetian Republic in 1797, there was a deep divide breaking these practices that had been in place for centuries, although they were, they were partially repeated by subsequent government until today. Now, Venice appears to many as a city like any other whose development is only limited by the lagoon. The lagoon is a limit. The lagoon is something that should be uh, more or less deleted. Uh, this is one of the reasons why it has been proposed to save Venice from isolation. Uh, at the beginning, as, as I'm sure some of you know, at the beginning of the 20th century, the, 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 20th century, the futurists, the futurist movements such as Marinetti, thought to fill in and tarmac over the Grand Canal, which was a uh, uh, symbolic um, and, uh, provocation. But, uh, but today, without being futurists, there are people who foresee a Venice, Padua, Treviso underground system with elevators popping up in every little campiello uh, and bringing people to the very center of Venice in order to create a single mega city out of the entire region with underground lines under the lagoon. In short, as it stands, Venice today seems to many people that uh, it is no longer enough. The now vast territorial restructuring project with labels invariably in English. Veneto City, for instance. Not Venice, but Veneto City. Or things like this. Huge built-up areas where one uh, can imagine that real life, I mean, life of production and consumption of goods is carried out in areas of new constructions while the historical Venice can be an exciting periphery on the seashore which you can reach by underground. So the real Venice would become like Disneyland uh, with uh, uh, the papier-mâché creation of Las Vegas or the city of the Doge's Palace rather than the city of the Doge's Palace and of Andrea Palladio. This process of Disneyfication has been, has been actually prompted up by, also by a number of Italian architects, including one who in an article in the, in the Italian journal Urbanistica, published as early as 1981, wrote literally these words. The transformation of Venice into a Disneyland could signal the passage to a more creative, more cheerful, and more festive way of living. So this is um, what uh, some Italians think about Venice, not me. No city in the world like Venice goes against a model of urban development that is based on a non-stop increasing population density and on progressive architectural verticalization. Protected by the lagoon in a millennial-old symbiotic relationship, Venice appears immune to any attack and incapable of aging. It could be, if you... If, if we visit it, particularly in the winter, a happy island in a world affect, afflicted by uncontrollable metamorphosis. But this is not the case. The sense of acute happiness that uh, we can feel sometimes in Venice, captured by its supremely urban dimension, though immersed in a natural environment of exceptional quality, gives way to other thoughts. Indeed, all you 
need is to stop for a few hours in Venice to be threatened, gunned your head by the dark ghosts of a modernity without a future. The ships, the gigantic ships, like skyscrapers, like moving skyscrapers, continually remind us that this city is not perpetually youthful, but is instead old, is, is moribund, poor, in need of holding its hand out to tourists for, for money at any cost. These temples of consumerism, these cruise ships which invade the city, destroy its skyline, better resemble huge Las Vegas hotels than ships they have something like 5,000 beds or something like this. Like in Las Vegas, ships with thousands of beds pass themselves off as exclusive luxury, but are holiday machines which crash standardized pleasures of pretended opulence. And uh, there's nothing to do to this, but uh, whether this should happen also in the Grand Canal is a, uh, the real question. They sell illusions passing the most banal in commercialized mass tourism off as highly personalized. These ephemeral sanctuaries of health rituals try their best to look like a city condensed into a skyscraper with shopping centers, restaurants inside, nightclubs, cinemas, shops, gyms, theaters, casinos, ice skating rinks, running tracks, sports grounds, in short, nothing more unnatural. Perhaps because of this, the moment of glory for these monster ships is when they can show off their pompous arrogance of being an artificial city, forcing their way into the dock of San Marco, challenging the millennia-old basilica, the bronze horses torn off by the Dodgers in Byzantium and the Dogel Palace. Rather, they line up against Campi and Cali, giving passengers the vapid pleasure of looking down on Venice from up on high. As tall as 60 meters and more, to a far greater extent than the noble palaces of the Grand Canal, these ships penetrate the heart of Venice to see its beauty, but they overshadow and damage the city, changing the perception of beauty even for those on the ground, in a gondola, in a canal boat, or on foot. To give you only a few examples, the ship Voyager of the Sea is 63 meters high, 311 meters long, 47 meters wide, with 47 decks. The slightly smaller Costa Favolosa openly vies with Las Vegas with uh, replicas on the ship itself of the forbidden city in Beijing, the Circus Maximus in Rome, and the Palace of Versailles. So people are uh, visiting Venice while imagining to be in Beijing or in Versailles and not even descending to look at Venice itself. Meanwhile, centuries-old equilibriums are changing, increasing the depth of the harbor moats from 9 to 17 meters in Malamocco and from 7 to 12 meters in Lido. And new canals are being built now after a recent decision of the current Italian government. Appeals are followed up without success. Even by, by, uh, there was even an appeal by the Académie Française. In vain, Italia Nostra, an environmentalist association, in an appeal heard by UNESCO, 
protested against this deterioration which is destroying the characteristic form of the city and its life. This is without mentioning incidents, not for the moment disastrous, which occur when, when one of these ships passes too close to Piazza San Marco and other areas. In Italy, indeed, these ships have uh, the bad habit of passing dangerously close to the coast. On January 13th, 2012, the Costa Concordia ran aground and capsized near the islands of Giglio in Tuscany, killing more than 30 people. Following this incident, the, government, the Italian government decreed that ships with a greater tonnage of, of uh, uh, with a tonnage greater than, than, than 500 tons than 500 tons cannot come closer than two nautical miles to the coast. Very good decision, with one exception, Venice. In Venice, they can come closer. Not in every other place, but in Venice, they can. Minister, mayors, and port authorities tolerate this for one single reason because they say that uh, the only life of Venice can come not from the work of their citizens, but from tourists. So they do it for money. Thus, a few steps from Rialto, the rowdy commotion of enormous ships continues harming the most precious and fragile city in the world. A million and a half tourists each year who come with the ships, with the great ships, after having distractedly glanced at Venice from above, they send them wander around for a few hours buying things from the stalls. In face of such benefit, whatever it is, never mind Venice dies. Money comes first, above all else, to the horrible visual impact. One can also add a significant decrease in water quality, as well as a higher risk of collisions and of subsequent spilling of hydrocarbons in the heart of the city a risk that increases with the number of cruise liners that are allowed in. In uh, um, uh, 2012, uh, different ships passed through the, 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 the lagoon very close to San Marco 2,000 times. In one single day, there were 30 such ships in Venice. Authorities try to deny the effect of the pressure of thousands of tons of water on the fragile banks of Venice, and uh, they uh, refuse to disclose data about pollution on the, uh, of the lagoon with dust, with dust particles on, or on the presence of benzopyrene, a highly toxic chemical. There are only privately uh, collected data which uh, is very difficult to deal with. The former urbis of Venice ir irreparably contradicts the model of modernity that takes the skyscraper as its symbol. Cruise liners bring to the heart of Venice an ephemeral and arrogant form of the fatuous, of that fatuous rhetoric of, sky of skyscrapers, humiliating both the city and us who visit it. But this can take place only because we do not know how to measure the gravity of the offense, nor do we understand how the old poetics of the Venice of the Lagoon is richer and more promising, not only as an heir to the past, but as a promise for the future. And Venetians, unfortunately, cede even more 
to the rhetoric of events behind the times with regard to the rest of the world, and therefore that it needs to be bettered and completed to make it worthy for the 21st century, events to be updated. And indeed, the most dangerous weapon against Venice, its most hidden and greatest weakness, is the recurrent accusation, being, accusation of being old, unsuited to the modern world, behind the times, and so forth. All these tendencies find their, for now, best expression in the project of a Palais Lumière by the French designer Pierre Cardin, who is actually from Treviso, so Pietro Cardin is his real name. This is true. I'm not. Uh, I'm not. Uh, uh, I, 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 this can be documented. Pierre Cardin, or Monsieur, Monsieur Cardin, or the Signor Cardin, would like to build his Palais Lumière at Marghera, costing one and a half billion euros, rising 250 meters high, with a total surface area of 175,000 square feet, square, uh, square meters. Uh, excuse me three interlacing towers, 60 inhabitable floors, a university of fashion, and then offices, shops, hotels, conference spaces, restaurants, megastores, sports grounds, and so forth and so on. A vertical city, a unique occasion, so they claim, to reclaim an industrial area in decline, a sort of tower of, of, of Babel with its 250 meter height, uh, uh, it would be a hundred 40 meters higher than the Campanile of San Marco. And soaring above Marghera would deeply imprint upon the Venice skyline in defiance to all the urban norms. Impossible not to see it from Piazza San Marco or for the whole city. Especially by night, these are renderings uh, that were distributed by, 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 by Cardin himself. The night effect. To, uh, and this is not uh, the only point, it would also cut across flight paths, would violate the, ha the, the height restriction imposed by the National Civil uh, Aviation Body by 110 meters. So making, creating danger for planes landing or, uh, or, or, uh, um, or departing from Tessera. And nevertheless, the, the then mayor of Venice asked the National Civic Aviation Body not to take into account this restriction. At, at, at this time, the project seems to be blocked by lack of funds and by negative public opinion. But it is worth all the same speaking of it, not merely as a symbolic treat, because it could sooner or later resurrect. A former mayor of Venice whom a journalist had asked for a reaction to the Cardin project, replied, horrible, but you don't look a gift horse in the mouth. A caval donato non si guarda in bocca. This is the Italian proverb. It is therefore possible that even a Venetian, his name is Cacciari, even a person of culture, a, a professor of philosophy, one who governed the city as mayor, can see this great act of violence as an opportunity or a gift to the city. And to understand what the real nature of this gift is, just look at this, which uh, I found in the, in the windows in the, of, of, uh, uh, of Parisian shops all around, uh, just um, to advert 
an advertising uh, selling apartments in the Palazzo, Car in the Palazzo Cardino, Carden, whatever it is. And you can see that this is the rendering of how the um, skyscraper would look like. And in the distance, it, do you see just below the uh, inscription over there, Palais you see that the, there is a spot, there's something, this little something is Venice. So, and the, the prices were thought of as rising. The more you, you, you go up, the more you pay, because you see more of Venice. So Venice is a component of the price. The dark stain at the bottom is Venice, reduced to a faraway site whose principal function is to inflate the price of the apartment, very much like in the nightmare of the Aqualta 2060 um, project. What do the, the, uh, the Cardin skyscraper project and the continual passing cruise liners down the Grand Canal have in common? There are some, say, good opportunities for Venice, but why? I, uh, uh, but let me ask, why, if we want to take tourists to Venice by sea, it is done with high-polluting cruise liners which work their way into the city, so, like so many skyscrapers. Why? Pierre Cardin, with over 250 square meters that he would have at his disposal, why he doesn't construct six smaller towers? Seven, 25, one. It must be very high, and it must be seen. It must, it, he wants it to destroy the skyline of the, of the city. There is only one possible answer. In, this in all these cases, violating Venice is not an unwanted consequence. It is rather the heart of the project. The very nature of it is to destroy and violate Venice. It is essential to desecrate this glorious city, which irritates the priests of modernity as much as an unwilling virgin might irritate a womanizer who thinks himself ir irresistible. The desecration, or rather the visibility of the desecration, bears a strong symbolic meaning. It is a statement of ambitious hypermodernity which seeks to take revenge of the past, humiliating Venice by looking down on it from a cruise liner over a super skyscraper. The problem of skyscrapers is a much big problem, and, and as you know, the uh, competition to construct skyscrapers intensified in the past few years. These new skyscrapers belong to very diverse typologies. Sometimes they add to the skyline of cities already greatly characterized by the presence of historical skyscrapers like New York or Chicago, or cities or new or relatively new cities like Chongqing, which I mentioned, or Dubai, the development of which in recent years has largely been under the banner of the skyscraper. At other times, a single skyscraper, like it would be in Venice, has been put in the very center of a city. This is the case with the towers of Cesar Pelli in, in Sevilla and Santiago de Chile. In both cases, the new Pelli tower has often been described as a giant phallic symbol, which by building it in the middle of a city transforms its appearance forever. The same architect mentioned it at some point, since it is visible everywhere. Such a metaphor points to a very strange conception of architecture as rape. Uh, and uh, of course, the, 
new wave of, 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 sky, of skyscrapers in New York. This is like, like Manhattan will, will look like in a few years, a few years from now. It's something to think about, something there are. Now there was a, a nice exhibition in the Museum of Skyscrapers in, in New York City a year ago <clears throat> with all the uh, connections between, uh, between finance, between uh, the, the, the finance and, and the, 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 the building of, of, of skyscrapers and their, and, their price, uh, and their prices inflated by, by finance and the very fact that most of those skyscrapers are built or bought, are built or bought by, uh, by anonymous buyers coming mostly from a number of countries including, let's say, Russia or Mm, Hong Kong, China, and so forth. L let me go back to Venice and conclude. What happens in Venice does not only concern Venice. The city indeed, because it is precious, unique, improbable. Venice is an improbable city in its very singular connection with the waters and the mainland. What, uh, what happens to it uh, um, is very important because Venice is going, is going against the grain. It is naturally pedestrianized and without cars. And it is therefore the dominant symbol on a planetary scale of the human measure of the historical city. Should we preserve this experience of space or dilute it, subjecting it to the sole thought that wishes to impose a single model of a new city identical throughout the world? We care so much for diversity among human beings, diversity of culture, diversity of religion, diversity of, uh, of, of different kind of orientations. Should we care also for diversity of the cities or should we only uh, surrender to a, a single model of, of the cities, increasingly verticalized, increasingly spreading all around? Venice is today the laboratory and litmus test for a global process of the decline of historical centers, often condemned to the condition of being left over. What is happening in Venice has therefore a, an, an, an unknowledged but obvious goal, to erase diversity, to homogenize cities, to substitute civil conversation for created spaces as machines for the production and consumption of goods. We must understand this process in order to to judge what we should do if we want to do something. Let us pause for a moment to think. As a great icon of the historical city, Venice is precisely for this reason the most important target for the new barbarians, who are happy to place themselves in the service of the gods of consumerism. And in order to save Venice from the offenses which can bring it to death, it is not enough to reignite in us the memory of the past, nor to describe the taste of the present. It is not enough to be indignant. It is not enough to protest. The decisive move is to formulate a project for the future of this city which preserves its uniqueness and where it has, as an undisputed rule, total control of the area and surroundings. I think we need now, in Venice and elsewhere, a far-sightedness which should be two-faced looking at the past and at the future. And therefore, armed with the secure memory of the past, we should try to know how to design a future worthy of Venice and of the historical, of the idea of the historical city and what it represents. 
uh, in, uh, in the world today. Our generation, and not just in Venice but everywhere, has been tasked with a great responsibility. Uh, it to show that diversity and beauty are not weighty legacies from the past, but an extraordinary gift to live in the present and an, 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 an extraordinary endowment to build the future, indeed to guarantee a future we might like. For Venice to exist in our century, it does not have to become a sort of, a sort of Chongqing. It instead needs to be its negation and opposite. That in the world in which we live, there is space for diversity of urban models, of cultures, of lifestyles, that space developed in Venice as the right of citizenship to remain in the world, not only today, but also tomorrow. Because if Venice dies, and that's the meaning of the title of my little book, and of my lecture this evening, if Venice dies, it will not only be Venice that falls. The very idea of the city, of the historical city will die. That form of the city, that forma urbis, is an open and wide space of social life, is a foundation of civilization, and I would add, it's a theater for a possible democracy. Thank you very much indeed.